Welcome to the Commonwealth Magazine podcast in partnership with Transit Matters. I'm your host, Josh Fairchild. I'm a board member here at Transit Matters. I'm your co-host, Jim Aloisi, also a board member at Transit Matters. On the podcast today, uh, we're doing part two of our series with Chris Osgood, Chief of Streets for the City of Boston and former co-founder of the Mayor's Office of New Urban Mechanics. Uh, this will be the second of two in, in the series. In the earlier one, if you wouldn't go back and listen to that, we began talking about the Go Boston 2030 plan and some of the things involved with that. Chris, I wanted to start off just with kind of a, an, I think, a, a curious question, uh, get, get your take on this. When you were um, going in the Go Boston 2030 process in the beginning, when you were going and asking residents um, their feedback, and then you kind of put together a few different, I guess I'll call it flavors, of what the future of a transit system could be, maybe centered around or, or, or look like. And it was like, go local and go cross town and maybe go tech or something like that. There was, there was four of them. What was the other one? Go regional. Go regional, right. I thought it was really interesting that the number one choice was go local. I mean, maybe it makes sense because it was Bostonians mostly who you were surveying, but do you think that says anything, um, you know, specific or revelatory about about the process and, and the people? Uh, so I'm, I'm a believer that uh, both Boston and this region have two major competitive advantages. Um, one is that we are a global hub of innovation. Uh, we are absolutely um, pushing the boundaries in so many ways, in so many fields um, out of this region. Um, the second piece, uh, though, I think of our competitive advantage is that we have some of the world's most livable neighborhoods. Uh, and uh, I think it's what uh, uh, really helps us uh, attract, retain um, uh Families, whether they're longstanding uh, or new coming to or new coming to Boston, and I feel like what we saw from the results of the Go Boston balloting portion is that um, folks wanted us to invest in that sort of second competitive advantage. They wanted us to invest in things that made um, their neighborhood, their area, an even more livable, wonderful place to be. I would imagine also just picking up on what you've both just said. I mean, one of the challenges in Boston, as in any city. It has to be finding approaches to improving mobility that are equitable mm -hmm. across the board so that the transportation mobility issues in East Boston may be the same as they are in Roslindale and Jamaica Plain, but also have significant differences that make them unique. And then you've got to figure out what's the common ground um, some of your responses may have to be neighborhood modular, but some of them are more evergreen. How, how do you how do you manage that? Mm. Uh, I think that sort of plays out uh, sort of through our capital program as we think about both where to invest and when we invest, how to invest. Um, we are very mindful that, uh, particularly on how we deliver. Um, some of those real neighborhood basics, fixing sidewalks, resurfacing streets, um, that we want to foreground equity in our lens for how we actually prioritize, that we're mm -hmm. really making sure that we are uh, investing uh, in those places where we think will have um, the biggest impact. But when we do make those investments, um, there's a huge opportunity for engagement, particularly on some of the, the, the more uh, the more large-scale projects. Um, and so I think, you know, of yesterday um, where we were out in Central Square in East Boston to cut the ribbon on uh, the new uh, Bertulli Park and Central Square itself, which... It's very nice. Thank you. Yes, it's a fantastic <laughs> project. Um, it is a project which, you know, thinking of long-term plans uh, coming to fruition, uh, that in 2007 uh, was part of uh, an initial sort of area of uh, transportation plan. Um, and it was a project which... Uh, we then prioritized through the capital budget. We were able to break ground on um, 
about two years ago uh, and brought to fruition yesterday. And that really, that the specifics of that project really speak to the interests of that neighborhood. So uh, there was a clear interest in figuring out how do you actually make the streets around Central Square easier to cross, more rational for all road users, um, safer for everybody. And so that's a big part of the, the geometric redesign of that space. It also expanded the green space. There was a clear cry for um, just a, a more beautiful park uh, there. We added, I think, around 97 street trees or trees to that mm-hmm. park. Uh, and then added in some green infrastructure. Obviously, it is a particular park that is um, fairly close uh, uh, um, to the shoreline. And so yes. we want to make sure that uh, that it was thinking about how to deal with um, things like stormwater runoff in a way that was uh, novel uh, for us. And so we're uh, trying to take the lessons learned from the green infrastructure we put into that park and think about how we bring it to other areas of the city. No, I've seen it. It's my old neighborhood. Yeah. It's nicely done. While we're talking about equity, um, the Transit Matters folks who have been advocating for night bus overnight service have been really appreciative of the city's leadership and support and being a co-sponsor of night bus. Can you talk a little bit about about the night bus initiative? You presented the pilot to the Fiscal Management Control Board uh, late in July. And uh, just sort of give us the city's thoughts on this uh, from both an equity perspective and a and an economic perspective? Sure. Uh, and first of all, I, the the thanks really should be uh, to the Transit Matters team. Uh, you did a uh, fantastic job, uh, you personally, Jim, uh, Mark, Ari, um, a number of folks, Josh, in elevating um, uh, the need for a overnight uh, service, uh, a night bus option that really worked for the people of Boston. And that as we did that, I think what we, we all sort of honed in on was, while there are many different uh, folks that a, uh, a service can, uh, um, can be tailored to between those hours of 1 a.m. and 5 a.m., that it's the folks who are commuting to and from work, particularly those who are uh, in industries that uh, may not have the highest paying jobs, uh, whether that is you know, food service, or uh, logistics, transportation, construction, et cetera. Um, and so that we wanted to make sure that uh, for those folks who really, in many ways, make our city and our region great, that we're actually providing a great service for them during those hours where there was, uh, where there is currently uh, very little, very little uh, public option. Um, foundational to what we were trying to get done was really documenting the fact that there's around 60,000 people that are probably commuting to and from work uh, in in the city of Boston or in the region uh, during those hours, that they're largely working in industries, again, sort of food service, hospital, construction, logistics, et cetera, that are growing, and they are growing in areas that are fairly geographically concentrated. And all that, I think, to us meant that um, there is a large constituency we can serve. We can serve, serve them uh, with routes that um, can be predictable um, and that uh, we could work with the MBTA um, to design those routes in a way that if they were done for a pilot year uh, would have a very good chance of being able to be sustained over time. And so while we have we are not done with the process yet, and obviously it's great to have uh, Transit Matters, the T, and all of us still working on this, um, I think we've made a lot of good headway um, over the course of the last year on this. And I think it's night bus is a really good example of how mobility is really critical to the economy, right. to access to jobs, to equity. And what I like to say to people is Boston, for those of us who've lived in Boston most of our lives and are a little bit older, um, it's not the city that rolls its, its sidewalks up at, at yep. midnight any longer. Yep. It's a 24-7 city, and that's a good thing. And mm-hmm. it's going to stay that way in this century. And something like night bus really responds to that reality. 
while we're on the subject of equity, um, at the hearing before the Fiscal Management Control Board, you also spoke on behalf of the mayor and the city in connection with issues about the proposal, the pilot proposal to to connect the Fairmont Line commuter rail service to, to Foxborough. And from a transit matters perspective, those of us who believe in rail can't really oppose uh, initiatives to get more people to places by rail. We want a regional rail system. But I think we share a concern that you expressed about making sure that that doesn't degrade uh, the service of folks who live uh, along the Fairmont line and who really have fought and labored for many years to get that service. Can you talk about how the city views that issue from an equity and mobility perspective? Sure. I think you uh, did actually a great job outlining um, sort of our our feelings about the pilot proposal um, of the Foxborough line extension. Then we can talk more about the Fairmont line. I think what the uh, there are definitely some upsides to the Foxborough pilot that was presented. It um, does have the potential to take some cars off the road by allowing more folks to be able to commute in um, on the regional rail system. It does help us connect um, residents within the city of Boston to um, some of the, um, uh, the, um, the job opportunities, the cultural opportunities, et cetera, um, that uh, sort of along the Foxborough corridor. Um, that said, sort of at the heart of our uh, um, of the issue that we wanted to make sure was addressed um, was this notion that if you are pairing the reliability of the Fairmount line um, with the reliability of the Franklin line, which this Foxborough pilot would run on, um, that you could potentially see a reduction in the reliability of the Fairmount line. And you could potentially see that because uh, it is quite frequent that the Franklin line has lower reliability than the Fairmount line. So if you're starting trains that run on the Fairmount line, um, you start them by on the Franklin line, you may actually have some downstream impact for everybody who's riding the Fairmount line today. Um, the Fairmount line for us and increasing the reliability and the frequency of the Fairmount line is, is critical. Um, uh, as we sort of had talked about earlier in the question that, uh, that Josh had asked, um, the, um, the Fairmount line is serving a lot of neighborhoods um, that have really long commute trips today. Um, it serves Hyde Park, it serves Mattapan, it serves Dorchester. Those are three of the four neighborhoods that have a higher than average um, percentage of their, of their population who are uh, uh, making over one hour long trips uh, to work every day. Every census track, I believe, in those three neighborhoods, in Hyde Park, in Mattapan, and in Dorchester, um, spend a higher than average share of wallet on uh, on transportation. Um, this is a line uh, which is in uh, a t within a 10-minute walk of a very large portion of the city of Boston, um, a very large portion of our residents uh, who are youth, uh, who are uh, living in households that are low income, uh, that are uh, families of the people of color, that together, like these, this is this is an area we want to be able to figure out a way to improve service, and that we have this existing asset of the Fairmount line, um, which if we ran a higher uh, frequency service on that line, uh, we could be able to actually connect um, more folks to the opportunities that exist within that corridor and the folks who live in that corridor today um, to the opportunities this entire region has to offer. I think people don't even know, and I'm, I was surprised by the data that I have seen um, there's a large proportion of people who live in Boston, in those communities that you just mentioned, and then in places like East Boston, who don't have access to an automobile. Right. And so they right. really are dependent on transit yeah. uh, or their or their own feet to uh, uh, to get them where they need to go, whether it's a job or school or or healthcare or whatever it is. And I think there's uh, there's a, a lot of credit to be given to. Um, 
a lot of residents and neighborhood groups who for years have uh, really advocated for uh, Fairmount Line, for the investment in the stations along the Fairmount Line. And I think you see a lot of those benefits uh, today. I think there's further, though, that we need to go um, to actually be able to deliver on the promise of what that line can do uh, for the city and for the region. When, when I was Secretary of Transportation, we tried and failed to, to uh, in that same part of the city, um, in, implement a bus rapid transit route from Mattapan Station to Dudley. Thankfully, there have been people, particularly the Bar Foundation, right. others who have maintained that lamp and lit the lamp mm -hmm. of bus rapid transit to a point where it's still very much an important part of our current mobility conversation. I know the city has been involved and expressed interest in BRT. Can you just talk a little bit about what that is and what your thinking is and, and how you see that developing in Boston? Sure. Uh, so I think that uh, it's a great question to ask after sort of the Fairmont line uh, question, because in many ways, I think, as we articulated earlier, um, where we have rail today, we want to make that rail work better. But where we don't have rail, there's an opportunity to make our buses work better. And key to that is uh, implementing either elements of or the entirety of, sort of what comes in the bus rapid transit toolkit. Um, it's a lot of credit to a lot of folks, yourself included, uh, and as you mentioned, folks at the Bar Foundation, um, for really uh, uh, helping all of us um, better understand uh, how uh, bus rapid transit has helped move um, hundreds of thousands of people in other places, um, and how those lessons could be brought to the city of Boston. We're fortunate to have, uh, at the end of May and the beginning of June, sort of a two-week pilot along the uh, Silver Line, looking at off-board fare collection. Um, for us, um, we uh, have been working with uh, the MBTA through our Better Bus Working Group to identify those corridors in the city uh, where we have high numbers of bus riders traveling very low speeds um, and thinking about what the interventions are that we can make to really address those challenges. One of those places uh, is the North Washington Street Bridge, uh, which is the bridge that connects uh, Charlestown, uh, the North End, and uh, sort of near North Station. Um, we are this month, uh, the month of September, going out to bid uh, on a uh, redesigned uh, North Washington Street Bridge. Um, that I know bridge, some of our members have been very active. We in appreciate that, that exactly. And, yes, and and in, in part, in large part, due to that, um, there will be uh, a, a dedicated bus lane um, on that bridge to ensure that uh, folks who are traveling either by uh, MBTA bus or shuttle are able to actually um, get into the city uh, more easily. Um, we are also looking um, at sort of a key corridor for us, which is that corridor between uh, Rosendale Square and Forest Hills. Um, in the AM uh, peak, a majority of the people traveling uh, inbound are on buses. Uh, in the PM peak, a majority of the people traveling outbound are on buses. In both cases, it's around 55%, between 55 and 60%. It's around 19,000 trips uh, uh, each day. Um, there are some... Uh, opportunities we have there to pilot something that actually could move buses a little bit better. So we are excited to be able to collaborate with the community and collaborate with uh, our partners at the MBTA to think about how we can um, uh, sort of pilot a, a slightly redesigned Washington Street corridor between those two uh, points, between Rosendale Square and Forest Hills, uh, to help folks who are on buses be able to move more reliably, uh, which we think actually will help everybody else who's in that corridor as well. Since you mentioned my favorite corridor, I've spent uh, many, many hours of my life waiting at stoplights uh, backed up with buses uh, on Washington Street. Um, 
there's two proposals um, which are not con- conflicting. They can both happen um, in, in due time. One is, as you just mentioned, the, the treatments to allow the buses to move faster and have priority along that corridor. The other is to extend the orange line, which people have been wanting to happen right. since the orange line, since before the orange line uh, began operating. Um, there's some tricky questions with the Needham line running at the same time. What can the right-of-way accommodate? What would be the best-case scenario for serving Needham people? But we're talking about Boston <laughs> residents. Um, I thought that the, I don't know if I have the number in front of me, the estimate for what it would cost to extend the orange line to Rosendale Village, it seemed like it was crazy high. And a lot of our members have commented, mm-hmm. Transit Matters folks have said that seems like a crazy high estimate um, for what seems like a pretty short, easy-to-do extension. The right-of-way is pretty much all there. The tracks are double-tracked almost all the way, maybe a few hundred feet from uh, Rosy Square Station. Um, but could you talk a little bit about the city's thought process so far on those two alternatives, whether one will happen first and will phase you know, in the orange line, and what has to happen for the orange line to get extended? I think just as you suggested, Josh, I think there's a, there's a, a phasing element here. Um, I, it will not be quick, no matter uh, what way uh, it happens, that we'd be able to uh, either extend the orange line or convert something like the Needham line to urban rail. Um, and uh, that's, it's interesting to talk about sort of both of those options. Um, so I think in many ways, the short-term uh, piece that we are looking at is uh, really how do we make uh, the bus service in that corridor better. Um, I would say the next piece that we'd be looking at uh, that would really go in collaboration with that is the Arboretum Gateway Path. Um, this is a, a wonderful idea that's emerging from a, a number of, uh, of partners out of Roslindale um, to uh, essentially extend the Southwest Corridor and the pedestrian and bike facilities of the Southwest Corridor have um, through the Arboretum and through the right-of-way that's adjacent to the Needham Line um, all the way up to, uh, to Roslindale Village. Um, and so I think in the short term, we be looking at um, those bus improvements and those pet and bike improvements, um, and then in the longer term, um, really thinking about is it an extension of the Orange Line? Is it urban rail on the Needham Line? Um, what's the right way of, uh, of moving even more people throughout that, through that corridor? When the city uh, uses the term urban rail, that's it's sort of a, not a, a defined term in transit circles, but uh, are you referring to uh, simply more frequent service along that line, or are you referring to electric multiple units, similar to what we have as subway cars, or are you referring to diesel multiple units? Is, is there, Great question. Does I mean, it matter? I would say, um, I would say the, the objective is um, frequency, and I think that the emissions component is important as well. Obviously, if, you know, if we're easier or as easy, or uh, it's certainly be preferable to do EMU versus DMU if you, uh, uh, all things uh, being equal. Um, so um, it's, it's less a stance, though, on this is the type of train set we should have, and it's more of a, uh, of a reflection that um, at current headways, um, we are not getting the amount of people choosing to take transit um, that we could, and we think the demand is far greater on places like the Fairmount Line, on places like uh, the Needham Line, on places uh, like uh, you know, the quarter of the Worcester Line between uh, the new uh, Boston Landing Station uh, and South Station, uh, and that that could be well served, very well served by a higher frequency line. Now, earlier we talked about regional cooperation with municipalities uh, to figure out how to fund or make happen um, certain types of service uh, improvements or extensions or expansions. Um, things that are within the city of Boston, such as we spoke about the Fairmount line, yep. we're talking about Orange Line potential ex- extension right now. Um, is the city, has the city thought about how it would go about doing something like that? So let's take the, I think the Fairmount is the easiest, easiest one to think about as a thought experiment. 
basically we could get better frequency if we just began adding some trains to that line. We'd have to dedicate some platforms at South Station, which we th- we do think is doable even in the current configuration without expanding that. Um, so just adding trains. Um, and then, of course, electrification is going to make things a lot better on that line. Um, so those are some capital costs. Has the city begun thinking about if that's something that you can shoulder yourselves or work with the T? This is not something that would be region-wide. It's just within city limits. So again, I think there's sort of a, a set of long-term questions about about funding uh, that, uh, that this raises. I do think that we've seen a place where uh, we've seen a number of examples recently, and, and uh, really credit to the Boston Planning and Development Agency, uh, to be the Boston Transportation Department, um, and a number of private partners um, who have uh, begun making investments in public transit infrastructure as part of their private development. So uh, New Balance's work uh, to create the Boston Landing Station, uh, WSC Port's work to create a new headhouse for uh, the courthouse station on the on the Silver Line, um, the collaborative work from a number of South Boston waterfront stakeholders to uh, implement a ferry uh, service between Lovejoy Wharf uh, and the South Boston waterfront. I think all of those are examples where um, you do see um, other sources of outside funding uh, going into uh, either the infrastructure side or the operating side um, of uh, what would be public transit service. And so I think those would be the sort of things that we could be looking at as well for um, how you actually uh, get the sort of investment that we need to deliver the services that we want. So one of the difficulties with that with that train of thought is that areas like Dorchester, Mattapan, uh, Hyde Park, they don't have the WSs building mm-hmm. 2 million square foot um corporate office towers to chip in a few hundred thousand or a couple million on a new head house. So we have to figure out how do we spread that around to the communities that, that need it most. Has there been discussions about how we can, similar to how we do affordable housing, um, how we can take a project and figure out how to have benefits on site, but also a portion of the benefits going to the people who may be working in that building but need to get there along a corridor. Exactly. Uh, what you said is uh, exactly what we're, we're taking a look at. So it's one of the other project and policy recommendations in there, which is how we look at um, in Go Boston 2030, uh, which is around uh, sort, of, uh, sort of our TAPA and TDM-related uh, investments. Um, traditionally, what we have looked at are um, essentially transportation-related investments that are proximate to a development or adjacent to a development. Um, but just as you raised, Josh, that there are ways in which we could actually benefit um, that development even more potentially by investing in some of the infrastructure that gets you to and from uh, that uh, that location on a more regional scale. So I think that uh, that's a piece that we're very interested in looking at. Um, again, with with uh, sort of going back to your your original point that it's it isn't necessarily about um, uh, looking at development that is. On the, like physically on uh, on those lines, but uh, development that actually benefits from those lines. One of the other things that we run into in in the same train of thought and issue a discussion is that when you have a huge development, everyone wakes up and pays attention to you know what's the traffic mitigation, how many people are going to ride transit, how can we make sure people are doing transit instead of driving their cars. But in less dense parts of the cities that that are more residential, maybe have some commercial hubs, what you're having is you're moving from single and two-story development patterns to three or four, maybe up to six, depending on what the zoning uh, will allow for and the variances that are common there. So, you know, what, what happens then is that you have increases in demand that are very incremental until finally there's a breaking point. And that very last developer who builds like a four-story, eight-unit complex, he can't afford to 
you know, take care of the mitigation for the the 300 units that were developed before him. What are we What are we thinking about as far as incremental um, um, allocations of resources from each right. little development? So, uh, great question. I think two pieces of that. One, that is exactly where things like the Go Boston 2030 plan or the recommendations that are coming out of uh, things like the Lower Mystic Regional Working Group are really are really valuable. They help us say up front, here's the the big investments that we need, the things that we think that are really going to make the biggest impact on the region. Um, and that helps us identify where, what would we be funding um, as, uh, as growth happens. The second piece of that is how do we actually think about um, adding incremental bits of funding to achieve some of those bigger pieces. And that's something which um, Vinny Gupta's team uh, has been taking a look at and thinking about how, how do we um, have a set of developments or uh, work in an area all um, contribute to a single type of benefit or a single type of uh, project. We're seeing some micro examples of that right now uh, on Harrison Avenue uh, in the South End and on Boylston Street in the Fenway where you have um, essentially adjacent developers uh, who are um, who are all supporting kind of a common design uh, of what the streetscape will look like. Um, so next, uh, this winter, I think we're going out to bid on the Harrison Ave work uh, with it going into construction uh, in the spring with better pedestrian uh, elements, removed median, uh, protected uh, parking-protected bike lanes, et cetera. I think there you see the sort of cooperation that you're talking about, Josh, of multiple players uh, who are uh, together making an investment, which individually they would uh, they may not have done. Right. It seems like if you're, whether the mechanism is going to be some form of value capture or some form of assessments over a course of years, um, leases, however you want to do this, if it's, if it's publicly owned land perhaps, it seems like if, if the community begins to understand that for every incremental development that happens, not just big developments, that they will get positive benefits from it, a portion of, of that will, will help not just mitigate issues but also create better transit or better parks. Things like the communities may begin competing for incremental you know, development that, that they can appreciate as opposed to just pushing off every type of development because anything is a zero-sum game. Yeah. Create a world of yimbies. <laughs> right. <laughs> can we, in the few minutes we have left, can we spend a minute or two just talking about traffic signal priority? Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know what that means, it means that a device uh, is put on a particular vehicle, usually public safety vehicles, emergency vehicles, buses, to allow the, the light to turn green in advance of their approach both for safety reasons and also to improve their access to their destination. What's the city thinking about that? What initiatives are taking place or about to take place? How do you see that sort of developing? Sure. Uh, so uh, the work on, uh, on transit signal priority is actually uh, fundamental to the Better Bus Working Group. It's a large part of our overall, um, our overall agenda. Um, we initially started with a focus on the Silver Line corridor between Dudley and downtown. Um, really, frankly, with uh, just trying to make sure that the, uh, the communications between the buses uh, and our signals were working well. Um, so we have uh, put in place TSP along that corridor. Um, the second area of focus was essentially the Green Line, has been some of the, the uh, uh, Green Line stops, so things like Commonwealth Ave corridor, mm-hmm. um, uh, any of our lights on Beacon Street, um, obviously the E-Line corridor, um, thinking about how we are moving everybody uh, who are on the Green Line trains um, better through those uh, those key corridors in our city, uh, and then also looking at some other um, major intersections and corridors that the MBTA and our transit signal folks, our traffic signal folks uh, together, have been identifying. Um, I would say that we're still sort of in the uh, 
in the early days of mass deployment, um, but we uh, have been excited about the collaboration that we've we, we've started with the MBTA uh, and want to figure out a way to accelerate that work. Great. I've got two uh, quick questions, if we can fit them in before the end here. Um, the first is um, the idea of fair fares or fair mm -hmm. rationalization did come up, um, and it's been coming up repeatedly uh, in the city. Um, and I think the clearest example oftentimes is, well, there's, there's two good examples, but the clearest example is commuter rail. Like if you go um, on the Needham line, uh, you know, you go to Forest Hills and it's one price and then it's more than double the price if you go any further, you go know, one station past it to Roslindale, whereas you could be on the bus and not experience an increase in price, which kind of encourages a misallocation of capital assets in that scenario, especially for folks who that's a big problem for them to afford to pay the $150, $185, I think, um, you know, monthly pass for the Zone 1 commuter rail. What What has the city um, been has the city been in discussions about this with the T? Um, what, what does the city think is a fair solution to, to that example of a problem? Um, so it's one that we're really obviously, uh, uh, we want to make sure that we have a fair, fair system, as you, uh, as you well said. Um, the, um, I think that the, in many ways the metric that you implied is, uh, is one that's really important to us. Um, what is the what is the right way that we can use the assets we have in place to best move people in the city? And are we actually um, pricing the services that we have um, in a way that is both efficient and equitable? Uh, and I think that uh, the example that you pointed out is that uh, perhaps there's some better ways that we can actually price things like commuter rail within zone one, zone one A, et cetera, uh, that actually uh, best move, give people the best choices um, uh, for how to get around the city. So as part of Go Boston 2030, as part of our ongoing conversations with the T, um, we have an interest in figuring out how do we put in that more equitable fare policy, um, both in terms of the overall structure, but as we think about um, the eventual fare increases that are going to come uh, with the system. Yeah. Well, the, the last thing I want to ask about something that I think a lot of listeners may not have really been aware of. Um, transportation demand management. The city of Boston does not have a TDM program on office uh, to, to any extent that I'm aware of so far. I know Cambridge has been doing this for a long time. It's something that was mentioned in Go Boston 2030 as, as a policy goal to begin doing this. Uh, I, my question, I guess, is, you know, first of all, can you explain to the listeners what exactly that is um, and, um, you know, how soon can we expect this to happen? Uh, sure. So, uh, with every uh, with every project um, in the city of Boston, uh, we every large project in the city of Boston, we uh, engage in conversations with uh, the developer and with uh, with employers about um, how they can best move um, uh, uh, move their employees uh, well through the city. Um, we are after Go Boston 2030 under the leadership of Commissioner Fiendaka and our Director of Transportation Planning, uh, Vinny Gupta, we've actually been spending a lot of time thinking about um, how do we create um, a better set of TDM policies or TDM requirements uh, for the city of Boston. Um, we are um, somewhat early in those conversations uh, uh, so far, but I think that, as you pointed out, um, this is something which has been done in some of our neighboring cities and towns, has been done in other places in the United States, um, and we want to figure out a way to uh, strengthen the policies we have right now um, so that we can actually achieve uh, those results of better safety, better reliability, better accessibility that our residents articulated. I want to thank you again for joining us. Um, for Did you have something you want to say, Vinny? Do you want to? Oh, okay, all right. Um, thank you both for joining us again for uh, this uh, the end of part two of, of this two-part series. Um, thanks for joining uh, for the listeners, um, and we hope to have you uh, here again, um, both for the podcast and for the future Transit Matters episodes. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. 